Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Look at that Mariska Hargitay. I rate my chances hanging out with her at 94%. She doesn't like you. You spent 18 months in prison for violating her restraining order. That's in the past. Since that time, I've become three of the top five experts on how to make people like you. That doesn't... I mean, how can one person be one of the top three anything? Obviously, you haven't studied your history the way that I have. Are you aware that five different Roman emperors were actually Cleopatra? Are you certain about that? I'm 91% certain. Do you know what else is 91? The atomic number of titanium, the number of cards in a tarot deck, and a song by John Mayer. Actually, those are 22, 78, and 83, respectively. I know, right? I have this incredible memory for numbers. Maybe if you'd paid a little more attention to that, you would have heard me tell you to buy oil when it was $170 a barrel. Yeah, isn't it like $45 now or something? Yeah, falling prices are good. That's how you make money. Seriously, why am I the only person who gets that? Is there a word for pathological overconfidence? Oh, yeah, dododoxyclokia. I'm like a walking estuary here. Yeah, you mean dictionary. Aw, it's Mariska Hargitay pretending to be a timeshare company again. Come on, M.H., let's be real, girlfriend. Uh, I can't take this. Mariska, I'm going to have to put you on hold. I'll be back in exactly five seconds, so just keep talking about the free island cruise that I want, okay? I'm like this amazing scuba diver. Meanwhile, here's a show about how some people are hardwired to be overconfident. (laughs) Poor saps. And now I'm 99% certain the next voice you'll hear will be the First Lady of America, Elizabeth Hasselback. Okay, that's wrong on several counts. Uh, but she does sound very confident when she says it. And the truth is, there is um, appear, there does appear to be sort of a natural cognitive bias towards overconfidence. That, that's what we're going to talk about today. You, you may think that it doesn't apply to you. That probably means you're overconfident, which I, I realize is kind of a circular argument. But let me give you an example from my own life. I'm not going to name any names. But I happen to, in my own living environment, have had an opportunity over the last few years to very closely study a person who is habitually late. And one of the things I've concluded about that person is that that person is overconfident about her ability to get ready in a certain amount of time. So, and and that, you know, if she says, I'm walking out of the house at 5 o'clock, uh, and it's 20 minutes to five. It, it really is the case that it's going to take her about 35 minutes to get ready to walk out of the house. But she she overestimates her ability to get ready in a certain amount of time. This is, I think, pretty typical. It's kind of what we're going to be talking about today, as well as the ways in which that can be out of it. Not that particular thing. That, I can guarantee you, is not advantageous. But in certain circumstances, that ability to, to, to have confidence in yourself and, and have that notion that your reach can exceed your grasp uh, can actually be a positive. But a lot of times it's not. All right, so let me tell you who's with us today. Uh, David Dunning is a professor of psychology at Cornell University. Dalian Kane uh, is, I should say, he's joining us from a studio at Cornell University. Uh, Dalian Kane's in the studio with me, an associate professor of marketing at Yale School of Management. Uh, and a little bit later, we'll talk to Terrence O'Dean, a professor of finance at the Haas School of Business, University of California, Berkeley. So um, 
let's begin. Well, actually, let's begin with a clip. So what does this sound like? What does overconfidence sound like? Um, here's uh, Tina Fey on 30 Rock describing an overconfident man. It's the bubble. He is a doctor who doesn't know the Heimlich maneuver. He can't play tennis, he can't cook. He's as bad at sex as I am, but he has no idea. That is the danger of being super handsome. When you're in the bubble, nobody ever tells you the truth. For years, I thought I spoke excellent French. All right, so one, that one reason would be just because you're handsome, you would think that you were better at things. But in general, there actually is uh, this bias, and it's... Uh, in fact, uh, David Dunning was so overconfident, he said, I'm going to do some research, and then an effect is going to be named after me, except that actually it was. So, um, David Dunning, first of all, maybe you can help us out with this. There actually is an effect called the Dunning-Kruger effect. What does that describe? Well, that's right. Uh, well, the Dunning-Kruger effect, uh, as it's popularly known, is <coughs> excuse me, just simply the idea that incompetent people don't know they're incompetent. But actually, it's, it's stronger than that. It's that incompetent people just aren't in a position to know that they're incompetent. Um, that is, they lack the skills to recognize that they lack skills. And as a consequence, uh, they live in a bubble uh, where they think they're doing uh, potentially just fine, uh, maybe even better than other people, uh, when in fact they're making uh, mistake after mistake, error after error. Now, uh, uh, one thing I want to uh, caution the listener is that when I talk about these people in this bubble, and also when we talk about the bubble of overconfidence, this is a bubble that all of us step into sooner or later. So this is a topic that's not only about them, uh, it's also about us. Um, give us a, uh, an example of the kind of study that you and other researchers do that, that points to that overconfidence bias. Uh, yes, what we might do, for example, in one study, we showed up at a uh, trap and skeet, uh, skeet competition uh, where people were shooting guns and just basically gave them a uh, quick quiz on firearm usage and safety. Um, and at the end of it, asked them how well they'd done on the quiz. And what we found was uh, no correlation between um, how people thought they'd done on the quiz and how well they'd actually done. In fact, and this is one of the few rare cases where we get this, the people making the most mistakes are actually the most confident in their knowledge uh, of firearm usage and safety. And uh, so what we found is that people's um, ratings of themselves in terms of expertise doesn't really correlate with the reality of their expertise. And people at the bottom just show very little insight, if at all, in terms of how many mistakes they're making. Um, by the way, as we go along here, uh, you may have, uh, you may be fairly certain that you have a really, really good question or comment. You're probably wrong. Uh, but call us at 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Uh, you may tweet us at WNPR Collins. So, Daly and Kane, given that, if we know that to begin with, um, what we obviously will do is set up a system in which there's a certain amount of peer feedback or, or environmental feedback so that we can correct for this bias. So is that what we do in our organizations? Well, it's hard to do but anything else but see the world through your own eyes. And you just know more about yourself than you know about anyone else. And that's one of the other causes of overconfidence. There's just a knowledge gap here. Look, I just know I'm pretty tall. And if you ask me, you know, Daly, are you taller than the guy across the street? I don't know him at all. So I'm going to bet that I'm taller than him. I'm just going to be confident about that. It also, that example brings to light that we're not overconfident everywhere. Uh, as Dave will agree, there's some cases where we're underconfident. So with regards to my juggling ability, I think I'm probably worse than some randomly chosen person. Uh, I know I'm horrible. I don't know anything about that guy. 
Uh, and so I predict that the, the, the better money is on him when it comes to tasks I find hard and on me when on tasks I find easy. And so because I always know more about myself than others, that's another explanation uh, for why these things are so hard to uh, avoid. Well, David Dunning, what about that? I mean, you know, um, when he speaks, I realize there are a wide range of things about which I have a very low level uh, of self-confidence, uh, things that, that I, I assume, I think correctly, that I'm bad at. And I think a lot of people listening would say, oh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I have no confidence in my ability to, to do X, Y, and Z. Um, so how does that square against the, the evidence that you collect in studies? Well, that's right, because if there's a bubble of overconfidence, there also is a bubble of underconfidence that people uh, step into um, uh, very often. Uh, but if you take a look at the number of times people uh, step into the overconfidence bubble versus the underconfidence bubble, uh, what you find is that people are uh, more likely to step into the overconfidence bubble. That's the general finding that research uh, gets. But that said, there are some systematic times in which people do underestimate themselves. Uh, one example, for example, uh, is uh, the people who are really skilled. Uh, often they have no idea how unique or how special their skills are. They underestimate themselves. Another time is when you're the only person in the room who is like you, like you're the uh, only woman in a room of men or you're the only man in the room of women or you're the only uh, African-American in the room of European-Americans. Being a solo uh, does bring doubt, uh, and it brings doubt to everybody uh, in that type of situation. So um, one of the things, uh, Daly and Kane, that we, uh, I think we know, but um, I'll ask you about it anyway, um, if you would like people to um, regard you with esteem, you should, in fact, exude confidence. I mean, you know, uh, David Dunning is talking about this sort of we have a bias to be overconfident about our, ourselves, our abilities. Um, I assume also that's pretty adaptive, at least for your esteem and organizations. If you exude that confidence, whether it's well-placed or not, people will uh, react positively to it. Absolutely. We like uh, optimists. And when I teach negotiations to MBAs and corporate clients, I say, you know, the last before you go in there, the last thing to think about is think about the target. Think about what you most want to happen, and that's going to kind of pave the way a little bit. At the same time, you know, when you're pitching to the investors, you should be confident. But two weeks prior, when you're preparing what the actual numbers might be, I, I might, uh, I, I would want my friends at least to be a little bit more skeptical. All right, we're talking about uh, overconfidence, about our bias towards overconfidence. Um, and uh, David Dunning, maybe you want to comment on that too. I mean, it seems to me that overconfidence does create kind of a feedback loop. Um, if, you're, if you exude confidence until you are absolutely exposed as a total fraud, um, you'll actually sort of get things from people that will reinforce your overconfidence. No, I think that's right. But uh, there is a, a little bit of a danger that uh, Dalian has uh, alluded to, which is uh, people like optimism, people like confidence, but people after a while tend to detect the people who are overdoing it. And as a consequence, you can lose in the long term, even though you can gain in the short term, and which means that confidence helps, but nothing works like being right. And so uh, Dalian mentioned this um, distinction between preparing for the presentation and giving the presentation. And I absolutely agree that when you're preparing for something, uh, you really should be skeptical, confident, um, prepare yourself as best as you can, and then you can go ahead and present and be the most uh, confident that you can when it comes time for presentation. Or at least that's what I'd like my doctor to be. I'd like my doctor to do his or her due diligence in terms of what's, what's uh, wrong with me, to really have sweated out what might be ailing me, 
And then when it comes time to tell me what to do, I want them to be confident uh, so that I'm confident that I should follow their uh, program. What were you going to say? Yeah, I mean, just a, that's a perfect example about preparation. And like, think about like giving a presentation. I often tell the students, like, uh, two weeks beforehand, one way to combat overconfidence is to not ask the question, is my presentation going to be okay? But rather to ask, what's wrong with my presentation? What will my enemies hate about it? What could someone miss or lose about my presentation? How could it go wrong? And that kind of pessimistic kind of angle uh, is, a, is a great way to spot the flaws in your presentation. It turns out that psychological research has shown that am I right is to the brain a quite different question than am I wrong. Uh, at the same time, as Dave nicely points out, uh, right before you present, uh, focus on the positive. You, you need all the confidence you can get. Of course, uh, one of the questions would be whether we have the internal capacity to do that with ourselves. And right. w- one place that we've s- we see that um, tried, uh, you know, Irving Jandis f- form, you know, famously wrote Groupthink, uh, and I think one of the things he looked at was the Bay of Pigs fiasco. And so the Bay of Pigs fiasco may have been the result of overconfidence, although Irving Jandis would say, no, it was one of this kind of collective sense of, you know, that we were in this kind of camel situation with JFK. Nobody wanted to really disagree with him. And one of the things that supposedly was done after that was that Bobby Kennedy was given the job. You be devil's advocate. Whatever everybody in the room seems to agree about, take the opposite position and pound away at it. Uh, See if, in fact, there's a flaw in it. Isn't that a better way to go at that than to rest it all on an individual student or, or any other individual to ask him or herself those kinds of searching questions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, appointing a formal devil's advocate kind of separates uh, your own personal opinion with the job of being a naysayer, which is kind of nice. You don't want to say, anyone think the boss is wrong? Anyone? Anyone? Rather, you want to say, Dalian, if somebody were to say the boss is wrong, what might they say? Now, not you, of course, but uh, what, what, what might someone say against this? I mean, uh, David Dunning, the other part of this, too, is if we're doing an internal, if we don't have that Bobby Kennedy figure around us, um, it seems to me the overconfidence bias joins hands pretty quickly with what we sometimes call confirmation bias, right? That you start cherry-picking evidence that makes, that, that confirms your original high, positive, high, positive hypothesis about yourself. Well, that's right. And uh, the confirmation bias is so ingrained that uh, there's a debate about whether that's a bias or maybe that's a design feature of our species. But um, the key is to um, do the opposite of what the confirmation bias wants you to do. That is, uh, if you're trying to uh, reach a decision, you may not only want to think through why might this decision be right, you may want to, as we say, consider the opposite, try to figure out why the alternative decision may be right or why your decision might be wrong. Uh, My favorite exercise is to say, okay, I made the decision that I'm leaning toward. Let's say six months in the future turns out to have been a disaster. What led it to be a disaster? And that's a very good way for me to be uh, my own devil's advocate, uh, for example. Uh, One last uh, bit is often... Uh, the best form of uh, of a devil's advocate to get, um, that is to go beyond yourself, is to find a good mentor uh, who's been there and been through a few battles. Often they're very good at pointing out what potentially might be the flaws in the decisions that you're making. Um, uh, David Dunning, let me follow that up with a question. about how, how does anybody function in an environment that's ruled by the Dunning-Kruger effect? Uh, and by what I, what I mean by that is, uh, I'm about to make up some statistics, but um, you know, if 65% of people think they're 99% sure about stuff that they're 40% wrong about, um, 
you know, why should I trust my doctor, my lawyer? My, I mean, why, sh- why shouldn't I assume that anybody talking to me has a slightly infl- is, has a high probability of having an inflated sense of his or her own acumen? Well, I think what you want to do is you want to identify who are the competent people or at least people who signal that they're competent uh, in the environment. So, uh, for example, let's say I'm diagnosing my own disease, which, by the way, I, I, I tend to do. Uh, I actually shouldn't rely on me to go onto the internet and try to diagnose what's wrong with me. I think I really should go to the person who's licensed, the person who's gone to medical school, for example. Or uh, instead of making uh, serious financial decisions based on my own research, I really should go to an expert, at least hear them out. Uh, That is, you're right, they may be overconfident, they may be suffering from their own biases, but uh, one question we have to ask is who's the person we can seek out? who's the most competent or most likely to be the most competent, thus the least likely to be suffering from the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, yeah, did you have one? I, I want to have a follow-up on that, but Delia and Kate, yeah, did you have yeah. a... Yeah, I mean, when you're looking for people who are competent, I mean, one of the keys is people who get immediate feedback. So people who predict weather, uh, although we berate them, uh, they get a lot of immediate feedback on whether right or wrong. And the art and science that is weather prediction uh, gets a lot of real-time feedback. Marshall Goldsmith likes to say sometimes with leaders the problem with them is they don't get immediate feedback and so they don't know whether their style works because of what they do or in spite of what they do. Uh, and so you're looking for, when you're getting mentorship, you want to know is are these the kind of people that, that are proven wrong and see that they're wrong when they are? Uh, and that's a good litmus test. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're talking about overconfidence. Uh, and let me grab a phone call here from Steve in Middletown. Hi, Steve. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, my question is about the underestimators at the, the high end of the skill set. What, what is, what's the mechanism there? What's occurring there? And, and what are the pitfalls of that? And uh, I'll take an answer off the air. So you, you want to know about the people who are actually very skilled but actually believe, uh, particularly if, you sort of, if they try to place themselves in a field uh, of 100% of people who are doing this thing, they, they, they place themselves too low on the scale? Yes. All right. That's a, it sounds like a David Dunning question. Go ahead. Oh, yes. I, uh, what's happening for people at the top is they're, they're committing a different error than people at the bottom. Uh, the people at the bottom, bottom performers, um, make errors about themselves and their own competence and their own expertise. That's what they're getting wrong. Uh, people at the top actually uh, know themselves much better. They know that they're getting these answers right. The problem for them is the answers are coming so easily to them that they just assume these answers are coming easily to everybody else, and all that they know is obvious. And so it's sort of in an objective sense they get themselves right, but they don't realize compared to everybody else how special they are, uh, unless you really confront them with uh, the decisions that other people are doing or the the choices that other people make, then they immediately get it, that uh, uh, their skill set is better than than other people's. And and sometimes that's the intervention that you have to do, is just show, for example, a very talented student how other students might be handling the same situation, and they will immediately get the idea that... um, uh, they ha- their knowledge is much more unique than they thought. The problem with that exercise for people at the bottom is that um, they don't realize uh, that they're making mistakes even though everybody else is making uh, different choices. So, um, Daly and Kane, this would seem to be an argument if, in fact, the Dunning-Kruger effect rules in a lot of situations. This would seem to me to be an argument against the kind of self-esteem-based environment that sometimes gets fostered in the educational system and elsewhere, telling people that they're really good, telling people that they're the student of the month, giving them a bumper sticker, giving them a trophy uh, if they're just on the team, uh, that, that whole sort of 
environment that one of our previous guests, Alfie Cohn, thinks is really good. Um, the, the argument might be made that you need a, more of a Simon Cowell in the world to tell you that you're rubbish when you're rubbish. Uh, some of my best friends are uh, pessimists and misanthropes. Uh, love you, JD. Uh, but uh, absolutely right. And, and when I teach, uh, for example, negotiations, that's one of the things I harp on. I, I come from kind of a sales training background. And so there's kind of like the slick, confident lines that I, I teach them. You know, if you give me XYZ, I'll sign right now and all of this. But really, the 90% of the success is from the people who three weeks ahead of time are thinking about how this could go wrong and preparing for it, for it and just using good old elbow grease to out-prepare and outwork uh, their opponent. That's where the money is. And David Dunning, what's your uh, reaction to what I asked Dalian about? That, that sort of notion that we, we shouldn't be beating people down, we shouldn't be squashing uh, their efforts before they get off the ground, that we should tell people, particularly young people, young hopeful people, that they're good, that they have value, that you know, their contributions are, are meaningful and, and worthwhile, sometimes maybe in the face of the facts. Yeah, I think uh, if I had a magic wand and if I could redefine self-esteem for us, uh, I think there are two ways I try to uh, uh, redefine what self-esteem means, usually like in a classroom setting or in a training setting or any sort of setting. The first is I would say that self-esteem really should be separate from uh, whether you're succeeding or failing whatever you're doing right now. So your self-esteem shouldn't depend on whether you got an A or a B or an F in your last class, or it shouldn't depend on whether you're the fastest uh, kid running down the uh, the track or not. That is, you are you. You should respect yourself. Self-esteem is something that you've earned already. You don't have to uh, perform. That's number one. But number two is I would say the true test of a person who has self-esteem isn't whether or not they're already good. The, the true test is what happens when you hit adversity, when you do fail, when you hit a challenge that initially is too big for yourself. Uh, do you pick up and continue and, and strive in a smart and hard way? Uh, to surmount that challenge, or do you give up? Uh, and I, I, I sort of wish there was more of an emphasis on the idea that we're all going to fail. Uh, the question is, how do we react to those failures? That really, really matters uh, for who we will ultimately be as people. Um, one of the things, we're going to take a break right now, and uh, I think you're going to try to add uh, Terrence Odin to this conversation as well. It does strike me that this is a source of great entertainment for all of us. Um, I was thinking about the fact that um, many TV shows, many comedy sitcoms are essentially about overconfident people. Uh, that that Parks and Rec is entirely a show in which Leslie Nope is overconfident, overconfident of her ability to pull off idealistic projects. Uh, Tom Haverford is uh, overconfident about his ability to make very dubious entrepreneurial pro- entrepreneurial projects work. Um, and, and then in a way, American Idol is also about overconfidence. I mean, some of the pleasure that people get in watching that show is watching people who think they sing better than they actually do. Uh, that that winnowing process that you watch them go through, when in which Simon Cowell or whoever takes his place these days uh, tells people that they're rubbish, when, and they are shocked. They are shocked to find this out. It's exactly the kind of thing that, that does fall within the rubric of the Dunning-Kruger effect. All right, let's take a little break. Uh, when we come back, we'll have more of Daly and Kane, more of David Dunning, and you'll meet a new guest. When you're extraordinary, you gotta do extraordinary things. I'm not the type who loses sleep over the size of the compost. 
We're talking today about the overconfidence bias. Uh, and I have a fear that sometimes we will attribute all human folly to the overconfidence bias, and that might be in itself an overconfidence bias. But uh, let's try uh, to uh, stay on point here. Um, before we go to Terrence Ardine, um, maybe a good way to talk about the kind of blindness that comes over us. Uh, Daly and Kane, I know you have a story about essentially auctioning off a $20 bill to your students. Tell uh, us that yes. story. So uh, one of my favorite exercises invented by my friend Martin Schubick, uh, it's called the Schubick auction. Uh, you start with a, a $20 bill. Bidding starts at a dollar, goes up a dollar at a time. Uh, it's just like that. Uh, the only twist is that, so if you win at $7 and the bidding stops, you win. Here's 20 The only rub is that somewhere, someone has bid 6 and they have to pay 2 and they don't get anything, so they lose. Everyone else is off the hook. Uh, in a room full of 60 people, the chance that you'll lose is small, so go for it. Now people go for it. Uh, what happens? Well, at nineteen dollars, uh, someone's at nineteen and someone's at eighteen, and the eighteen dollar person realizes if I just bid twenty, I break even. It's better than losing eighteen. So they go to twenty. Then the nineteen realizes it's better to lose one dollar than nineteen. So they go to twenty-one. And once we break that seal, off we go, and it goes for a lot. Now the 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 notion of overconfidence. It, there's lots of different. Um, motivations uh, or explanations for overconfidence. And one is, well, we just like to see ourselves as a winner. That's the motivational account, and I think that's a lot of it. Another is just we kind of neglect uh, to think about the competition. This is fun for me, and I just don't think about how it's fun for everyone else and how that plays out. And another is even, you know, kind of uh, by Don Moore and Paul Healy, it's kind of a knowledge gap. Even if I think about the competition, I know I'm excited. I don't know if you are. So I'm inclined to think that I'm more excited than you. Uh, And so bidding for all those reasons, uh, uh, bidding goes way over the top. It's a really fun exercise. Well, that's a nice segue into the research of Terrence O'Dean, as I said, professor of finance at the Haas School of Business, University of California at Berkeley. So um, welcome to the conversation, Terrence O'Dean. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, so one of the people, one of the groups of people that you've looked at are traders. Uh, you know, obviously that's with a D, not a T. Although I think traders with a T are probably overconfident in their own way too, but that they won't get caught. Uh, but traders, and so America is now full of guys who sit down with E-Trade or, or something like that. Uh, and they, they do stock trading. In many cases, they do worse than a chimpanzee throwing darts at a stock table would do, right? They do worse than if it were all random or coin flip or, or, or something along those lines. So, so, so tell us about what fuels that kind of behavior. All right. Well, I've done it. Uh, I did one study some years ago, and I was just looking at individual investors at a discount brokerage, which basically means they were making their own, their own trading decisions. And in fact, I found something pretty close to what you described. The stocks that they bought on average went on to do worse than the, than the ones they had just sold. Uh, and you should be able to do slightly better than that, throwing darts. Um, we also looked at how people's behavior changed when they started trading online. This was when online trading was Pretty early, pretty early on, and we found that uh, initially people traded a lot more when they went online, which is sort of to be expected. It's a new toy; you want to try it out. But what was more significant and important is that after they settled down to a, a, a new sort of steady state, they were more active traders than they, than they had been. Uh, so if you put together that you're making on average poor decisions, and now you're making more of them. Uh, that's not a great outcome. And I think that 
there are, there are various reasons why people trade actively and trade too much, but certainly overconfidence is part of the story. Uh, people think they know more than they do. And sometimes, you know, a question I think that very many investors don't ask themselves uh, is who's on the other side of the trade? And that's very, that going back to the auction that was just described, uh, it, it's sort of an analogous problem. You know, in the auction, what you should be asking before you ever bid is, what about the other people in this auction? What do I expect them to do? If I bid 19, what do I expect the guy who just bid 18 to do? Well, very likely the dude's going to, you know, outbid me. So in, in that game, it's not that someone has an informational advantage, it's just that you both lose by continuing. In investing, an investor should be saying, okay, I read some article, I, I, I heard something on the radio today, I read some article in the paper, and now I'm excited about a stock. They should be saying, but the, the person on the other side of this trade is probably an institutional investor. They didn't just read some article in the newspaper today. They've got a team that's been studying these stocks. They have access to a lot of data. They understand how to do you know, uh, cash flow discounting and how to do value, you know, work valuation models. So I think part of what goes on is people just think, hey, I'm a smart guy. I know what I'm doing. And they, they don't fully appreciate the the difficulty of um, outperforming the market. Uh, David Dunning, um, uh, Ter- Terrence Odin just used the phrase, I'm a smart guy. Uh, and we'll come back to, to him in just a second uh, about that, uh, because I think he did, in fact, study sp- specifically uh, men and trading. But w- in terms of your overall research about the overconfidence bias, uh, is there a gender gap there? Uh, there are gender gaps, but it depends on what exact area of life that you're talking about. So if you're talking about something that's male-linked, uh, in academics, for example, science still is male-linked, um, you'll tend to have men who uh, think more of their scientific talent than women, and, and women tend to underestimate themselves. However, if you go over the humanities, you uh, see that that neutralized or it flips, and it's the women who are more uh, confident in their skill than not. Uh, but, you know, there are stereotypes out there in the world, and people do apply those stereotypes to themselves. So there isn't an overall gender gap, let's say, but there are gender gaps, and they can sometimes be quite telling. Um, what did you find, uh, Terrence O'Dean? Well, we didn't study the gender gap. We actually, our starting point on uh, a study I'll describe was that, what, what David just said, which is that in areas that are in our society generally perceived to be in the male domain, the mathematical sciences, uh, mathematics, and finance, uh, men tend to be more overconfident than women. So it's not across the board in every domain, but in things like finance, that, that tends to be true. So Brad Barber and I used that as a starting point. We said, well, there's good reason to believe that men will be more overconfident than women when it comes to investing and trading. If so, our theory of how overconfidence affects investing is that men will trade more and that that trading will hurt their returns. And that's exactly what we found. We did a study of more than 60,000, well, actually, it's about uh, more than 30,000 households uh, for which we knew uh, whether the, uh, the account, the household account had been opened by a man or a woman. And we found that the, uh, that the men traded uh, was about 40% more actively than women. Single men traded 67% more actively than single women. 
both men and women underperformed in terms of, of uh, their returns, what they would have gotten with a buy-and-hold approach to investing. But men underperformed by one percentage point more a year than women. Uh, so it was pretty, pretty significant uh, in terms of both the active trading, uh, the more active trading of men, and that it affected uh, their performance. So you look at something like that, and you wonder whether you can see the seeds of certain kinds of disasters and fiascos. I mean, things like the 2008 uh, uh, financial crisis. But Daly and Kane, one of the aspects of m- many fiascos like that is not merely competence or incompetence or an overestimation of one's competence uh, and a willingness to ignore data that indicates that one isn't as competent as one thinks, but also people's estimation of their own behavior as tolerable, as ethical, as moral. Um, uh, I don't have a conflict of interest. It's not wrong to uh, to do what I'm doing right now. This is, I, I can, you know, it's not wrong if I'm um, uh, betting on, st- I'm encouraging people to bet on stocks uh, to win, even as somewhere else in my firm, Goldman Sachs or wherever, there are people be- betting on the same stocks to lose. There are all kinds of behaviors that, that people, and I assume we have the same overconfidence problem there, too. People basically think they're doing the right thing, whether they are or not. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, you know, people often think they're more ethical than others, not because being ethical is easy, but it's easy to think of yourself as ethical. I can think of the times that I helped a, an old person cross the street and score. I'm more ethical than you, suddenly. Um, when it comes to conflicts of interest, I think the, uh, the, the lay uh, person has kind of the wrong mental model of it. We think of these conflicts of problems only for like the Bernie Madoffs of the world, the psychopaths who will line their pockets at their client's expense. But people like you and I who are well-meaning and professional and care about our clients uh, will still succumb to kind of self-deception, believing our own lies, and it's the unintentional biased expert that I'm, I'm worried about. They, they know for sure which answer lines their pocket, but they're unsure what is the objectively right answer, uh, but they will seek uh, arguments to believe that they... Uh, coincide. That's that's the danger I worry about. So David Dunning, that raises like a, a really sort of fundamental human question that goes, I think, lies somewhere outside uh, the, the rubric of behavioral science or, or, I mean, which is sort of how do we even judge people? I mean, for example, here in Connecticut, we have a former governor who went to prison once. Uh, he's now awaiting possible sentencing once again, having done something kind of similar. And, and you know, there's a tendency to sort of say, well, he's just kind of a bad guy or he's a sociopath or he's a psycho path. But listening to Daly and Kane talk, I'm thinking, well, maybe in fact he just has um, uh, an overconfidence bias about the, the, the morality or the, uh, the ethics of his own behavior. Maybe he just doesn't think he's doing anything wrong in exactly the way that Daly is describing. And actually more than that, if uh, well, what I try to tell our, our students um, is that, uh, and don't think that if you were in his or her shoes, you would have acted any differently. Uh, that is, that we can think that we're going to be moral creatures, but uh, we wildly overestimate our, our moral and ethical nature and are very much likely to act like that person if faced with the same sort of situational circumstances and pressures. That said, um, we are responsive to situational uh, circumstances and pressures. And one of the things that does make us act moral is the fact that if we act in an immoral way, there is a punishment system out there. There, there are a set of laws. Uh, there are courts that will, uh, okay, you, uh, understands that um, people do succumb to temptations out there in the world, but you still are going to be responsible 
for uh, controlling yourself. You're still going to be responsible for resisting those temptations. So in a twist, um, uh, human nature does succumb to lots of temptations. But one of the biggest breaks we have uh, about that is making people responsible for, in their own life, applying those breaks when those temptations appear. Um, Terry O'Dean, as we look at what did happen in 2008, that seems like an enormously complicated system. Of course it is. You know, as opposed to the traders that you're studying where, I mean, I, I assume, you know, if I buy Wurlitzer at 17 and it drops to 50 and I'm an idiot. Um, 2008, we had all kinds of things happening. But we, you know, one of the things we know we did have were these derivatives, you know, and sometimes they were bundles of mortgages, which weren't even being policed by the mortgage issuer. The mortgage issuer was no longer responsible for the actual loss taken on on a mortgage. We had this huge system that, that kind of caved in on itself. Do you still see lines, bright lines that you can draw from the kind of research you did about trader overconfidence to what ultimately did temporarily whack uh, the U.S. market so hard? Oh, I, I would think so. So let's take the example of uh, rating agencies. So a lot of the complex uh, securities that, that were created derivative securities were things like various mortgage-backed or collateral-backed, uh, particularly mortgage-backed uh, um, obligations, sort of um, bundling of mortgages and then, then selling them. And rating agencies gave these bundles of mortgages ratings, and often very high ratings. Now, because the, there wasn't a long history of uh, these you know, financial uh, uh, is securities. Uh, there was, you know, how to how to rate them. Uh, they had to be rated on. Or they were rated on, on on a fairly short history of what you know what we call back testing. So you could say, well, you could. There, there wasn't a lot of certainty as to how they were going to behave, and rating agencies uh, developed models that were fairly favorable in terms of how these things got rated. Uh, rating agencies were also paid by the companies that were issuing the securities. And I think it's, it's very close to what was just said, which is, uh, you know, it's not that the, the rating agencies thought, oh, we're doing clearly the wrong thing because of uh, our, uh, how we're being compensated, but they're left with a decision where maybe the, it, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't clear cut what should be done, and, and they were probably influenced, uh, influenced, you know, by by the um, conflict of interest or, or the pay structure. And what kind of gets thrown in there is there's a general tendency for experts to be more overconfident than non-experts. And uh, I think Amos Tversky once wrote that that experts with models are likely to be particularly overconfident. And one thing that happens is after the after a while the model takes on the life a life of its own. It kind of becomes an oracle. Yeah, you could even I mean actually Dalian was talking about meteorologists before. Uh, you can sort of apply that to they've got models as well. Uh, talking to them. Uh, all right, you know we have to take a quick break here. Uh, I want to leave time for um, the, well the time is flying by. We were overconfident about how long it would take to discuss overconfidence. Because I am awesome, my name is Colin, and I'm really, really awesome. If you don't believe me, just listen to what my backup singers have to say about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
I'm 88% certain today's show was produced by Alan Turing and Elizabeth Warren, unless it was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Sydney Loro. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Alan Greenspan. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff being totally sure the bananas and cabbage flambe will not burn the radio studio down, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the dream of human-powered flight. And now, back to Colin. Which, when you think about it, is a nice segue from overconfidence. Um, all right, so uh, we're, we're still talking to Dalian Kane. He's an associate professor of marketing at Yale School of Management. And David Dunning, uh, a professor of psychology at Cornell University. He's joining us from the studios of Cornell University. Uh, he is the person whose name appears on the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is, in fact, uh, an overconfidence measure. Um, all right, so Dalian Kane, I, I want to sort of switch tone a little bit and say, in a way... We, at least in, in, in situations where the cost of competition is pretty low, we, we want people to be somewhat overconfident, right? Nobody would ever run for president uh, if it weren't for overconfidence. There's like 20 people running for the Republican nomination right now. There'll be, you know, five or six people will seek the Democratic nomination. Only one can win each and only one can win that election. So just the odds are tremendously against you. Uh, your co-teacher, Barry Nailbuff, he would never have started Honest Tea Company because, in fact, so many entrepreneurial activities are doomed to failure. Nobody would ever open a restaurant. I mean, you know, there are chances of making money and opening a restaurant. But we, so we want people to do these things. We want people to do these things things which statistically are unwise and probably overestimate their chances of success. So how do we square that with David Dunning's research? Yeah, I mean, we want people, some people, to do these things. I'm glad there's lots of burger joints and bars out there, but I don't want uh, any of my friends or close relatives or anyone who's asking me for money to do any such thing. These things are too dangerous. And so we can think about, like, what's good for society versus what's good for my friends. Uh, and, and also, while a certain level of optimism would be great for entrepreneurs in general, it would be even better in, uh, in some cases where they were more prepared uh, and proper calibration might lead to that. Um, yeah. Well, David Dunning, let's explore this a little bit more. First of all, I, I, one thing we haven't talked about is, is this, in fact, uh, is, is overconfidence and overconfidence bias, is it just the product of, uh, of group dynamics or is it wired into us? I mean, you could look at the human species and think, well, you know, if you sort of look at us, we kind of have overachieved as a species, unless you think we're actually in the process of wrecking the planet, in which case maybe not so much. But in general, if you look at the millennia, we've overachieved as a species. Maybe we really need to have people uh, among us, m most of us, almost all of us, have at least some sense that our reach should exceed our grasp. Oh, yes, this is uh, the $64,000 question, and this, this would require, I think, a week of shows uh, to adequately address. Um, my take on it, uh, to be brief, is that um, overconfidence isn't uh, a product of evolution. Rather, what it is is evidence of just how hard it is to be a species that survives. That is, if you take a look at the environment around us, it's not us. It's the environment around us that conspires to make us overconfident. That is, there are certainly things that we know, but as Donald Rumsfeld um, famously said, there are you know un known unknowns and unknown unknowns and that uh, the environment around us hides from us. And the very presence 
of these unknown unknowns uh, guarantees almost that we're going to be overconfident. So in some sense, overconfidence is not so much a characteristic that's been bred by evolution. Rather, it is the challenge that we as a species are still trying to master. I think it's part of the environment. It's not part of us. Well, I mean, and some of it does go to that question about the cost of competition, right? I mean, in in general, I don't, you know, I don't even really mind. Unlike Dalian, I guess, I don't really mind if my friends tackle entrepreneurial projects that are risky. I have one friend who's gone bankrupt once or twice, and he's now incredibly successful. Uh, it took a while, you know. He had to make some, some big mistakes. I, I thought that was fine. I don't want my friend to rob a bank if he's not a really good bank robber. If he really thinks, uh, David Dunning, that he can pull off this bank job and he can't, uh, the cost of competition is very high. And I also don't want my friend to think that he can pick a murderer out of a lineup if, in fact, his, his memory isn't as good as he thinks it is. That is, is I, I mean... Isn't that part of the question, too? What's the cost of being wrong? Well, I think that's right, because uh, there are certainly in our evolutionary environment, you can imagine, instances in which being overconfident, at least initially, was to our favor. I mean, up until, let's say, 200 years ago, uh, overeating wasn't the problem. Finding food was the problem. And so being a little bit biased towards seeing that thing over there over there as food or as berries or something like that, uh, and being wrong about it, well, okay, we were wrong, but uh, we will see all the berries that are out there. So being overconfident would have helped us. But then there are uh, issues in which being overconfident would not uh, help us. I would not want to be overconfident in any competition with a tiger. My bet is on the tiger. So in some sense, um, as we move ahead with evolution, the, the, uh, the real issue that we as a species have to figure out is when potentially should we be right? When should we be potentially be overconfident because that's going to help us? And when should we be underconfident uh, because that is going to help us? And so there's going to be nuance to whether we should be um, uh, overly sure about ourselves or undersure about ourselves. On the other hand, uh, David Dunning, I'm going to stay with you on this for just a second. Okay, so, sure. um, you know, you can make an argument, and we have been making an argument. Well, then an adversarial system is pretty good. Yeah, in other words, um, um, uh, you say I'm guilty, I say I'm not guilty. We, you know, you're a prosecutor, I hire a defense lawyer, uh, and we, we fight the whole thing out. Uh, and, and so, and there's rules of evidence and all, all this kind of stuff. But it's also true that we do, even within a system like that, place a certain value, a high value on certain kinds of things. For example, eyewitness testimony, right? That's the mm-hmm. thing that's supposed to be able to con- uh, convict you. But we know from research, uh, I think, that you've done, ranging also from the work that Elizabeth Loftus and people like that do on memory, eyewitness testimony is not all that good, is it? Yeah, I mean, uh, eyewitness testimony presents a real problem because on the one hand, it's absolutely essential for a lot of different types of cases. It's the only evidence you're ever going to get, or certainly in the first few days of an investigation, it's the only thing you're going to get. But eyewitness identification and eyewitness testimony tends to be very fragile. And uh, perhaps the most telling evidence of that is over the past decade or so, there have been a number of innocence projects uh, developed around the country who have reexamined old cases where people claim that they're innocent even though they've been convicted of a crime. And uh, now there's DNA evidence, so there's more conclusive evidence so we can really prove whether they're uh, guilty or innocent. And uh, the DNA evidence uh, proves that they're innocent. Now, go back to those cases, those cases where we now know the person has been convicted, but actually, ultimately, they turned out to be innocent. What type of evidence got them into trouble in the first place? And it turns out that in about 75 to 80 percent of cases, uh, the evidence that got them into trouble was eyewitness uh, evidence, uh, uh, identifications, victim identifications, descriptions from people who are at the crime scene. Uh, 
eyewitness identification is absolutely essential. You can't get rid of it, but it is incredibly fragile uh, as a form of evidence. Um, so, Daly and Kane, how do we go from everything that we've said uh, today about the overconfidence bias? I keep coming back to the question, how do we avoid a paralyzing sense of agnosticism? In other words, if we were to really kind of act on the statistical data that we have, the kind of research that David Dunning has done, you know, we really would start to distrust all kinds of things that are necessary to trust. And we, we might, in fact, be discouraged from undertaking things that, that contain elements of idealism or underdog uh, ventures. Uh, but we, do, we don't want to do that. How, how do we design systems that nurture the good parts of this without having us be prey to the folly of it? I think even when you're considering how you might be wrong, you know, research shows that you kind of come to conclusion more quicker and you feel better about the process. So it's not that we're suggesting that you doubt yourself into indecision, but that you at least consider how you might be wrong at some point uh, in the process. Uh, and I think, you know, we can, when I talk to students about how to moneyball talent, uh, riffing off the, the recent movie on uh, using uh, calculations to pick baseball talent, we talk about, you know, if you could hire someone with a calculator, wouldn't that be grand and take the overconfident uh, in intuition right out of it? And the audience doesn't really like that kind of message. And where I leave them off is somewhere in the middle and saying, well, let's pretend we'd be the naysayers with the calculators. And how would that look like? And what would the Excel sheet say? And how would we weight, for example, letters of reference? And how much weight, for example, do we want to put on the uh, job talk or the meeting, et cetera? And we don't have to actually make the decision with the calculator, but we should have a conversation of what the calculator would look like. And that will, in turn, inform our intuitions. And we can kind of go back and forth between the naysayer and the uh, optimist and come out hopefully on top. That is the perfect place to land the plane. Thanks to David Dunning from Cornell University, to Daly Ed Kane. You just heard him from Yale School of Management. Special thanks to Betsy Kaplan. She pulled this whole thing together. We'll see you tomorrow. I am 99.999% certain that the show ends in three, 